I'm sitting there, sitting there, and then this big Dodge Ram like truck pulls up, like khaki colored, with all these guys on the back of it with AK 47s or M16s or what have you. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's, what's this? G'day, and thanks for tuning into Anything Goes. I'm your host, Edwina Robertson, AKA Eddie. This show is brought to you with the intention of sharing interesting stories, experiences, and conversations from, well, mostly normal people. The following episode is a little bit different in format. We share the journey and experiences from Christina Wilson, founder and owner of Inverted Atlas, a tour operator exploring some of the most unique places on the earth. If you have a penchant to explore or maybe looking for a once in a lifetime journey, this episode is surely for you. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Christina Wilson. Christina has her own travel agency, Inverted Atlas, and it's not the standard kind of travel agency. So, so I've been told. Now, Christina, thanks for joining us today on the Anything Goes podcast. No worries. Great to be here. Who are you, Christina, on this day in 2023? What does your life look like? Where do you live? What do you do? Just uh, to give the listeners a bit of an introduction to who you are. Okay. So I live in Sydney and like you said, I own a company called Inverted Atlas, which is not strictly a travel agency. It's actually a tour operator. So a lot of people get those two mixed up. So the travel agent is usually the person who sits behind a desk selling other people's stuff and a tour, tour operator we have our own product. So we have all these wonderful, quirky, fun, once in a lifetime type experience tours and they're sold or they can be sold by travel agents or they can be sold directly by us. I'm lucky enough to work from home, which is, which is wonderful. Um, so I spend my days, uh, designing tours to far off places. And that is when I'm not leading tours on far off places. So where I live is sort of a bit of a flexible thing. So sometimes I'm in Sydney, sometimes I'm in Egypt, sometimes I'm in Morocco or Uzbekistan. So it's a very interesting life. Yeah, wonderful. And home for you typically is Sydney though? Sydney, yeah. I was born and raised in Western Sydney. Now, I have to ask, that's quite a boutique kind of service that you offer. How did you get into doing this or or having this company? Well, that is a long story. (laughs) So when people start out in our industry, in the travel industry, it's usually for a travel agent. So like usually it's flight center. They're like, McDonald's (laughs) McDonald's <laughs> for people in travel industry. Everyone starts there, but that wasn't me. Um, so I started a bit differently. So I actually was looking to travel again back in 2008. And um, I wanted to go back to Turkey because Turkey was a really cool surprise to me the first time I went. When I first started traveling, my only interest was in visiting archaeological sites because um, that's that's my background. That's my first love um, is ancient history. And I did that at university. So I started archaeology and I wanted to visit Troy in Turkey so badly. And everyone kept saying, oh, it's dangerous. Why do you want to go there? You know, I was like, yeah, I'm determined. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Turkey. And then I went and it was just the best surprise ever going to Turkey. So I wanted to go back again on this this next trip, but, you know, it was a lot younger. I was, you know, still doing the hostel thing, didn't have a lot of money. So I was looking at this tour company and it's, they had a little like thing that said work for us. And I was like, oh yeah, what's that about? And it was this job called a tour leader. So I was like, oh yeah, leading tours around Turkey for six months. Yeah, that would be amazing. I could do that. 
I know all about all the historical sites in Turkey and I love the place and yeah, I'd love to move to Istanbul. So I just applied sort of on a whim and that was how I got in. I got the job. I did the interview for the job while I was being interrogated by Israeli security in Tel Aviv. It was amazing. They let me do the interview at the same time. And apparently that was the reason I got the job was because I was able to multitask in a stressful situation. <laughs> what? Just just quickly, why were you in that position that you were getting interrogated? Oh, my God, that whole trip to Israel. It was just a day. I don't know how many problems and how many things can happen in just a day. But on the way out, so um, I was in Egypt and I went to Israel for the day on a day trip. We went overland, well, I went overland from Egypt by myself and met the tour group on the border with Egypt. And then we went all the way to the top of Israel, all the way to Tel Aviv, like through Jerusalem, and we were supposed to fly back. But the the tour guide just said, oh yeah, everyone's British when we checked in for the group flight and I wasn't British. Well, I am am British. I have a dual passport now, but I didn't then. And they just saw my random Australian passport and it kind of freaked them out. And they were like, oh, why why is this one Australian? What's the problem here? And why are you traveling by yourself? And, you know, because I was only like 24 at the time. And, you know, do you know people in Egypt? And, and it was like, I'm leaving. Why am I being terrible? I get it if I'm coming into the country, but I'm literally leaving. And I, I learned the hard way then that, you know, one of the greatest pieces of advice I give to travelers now is if you're ever interrogated, give them give the bare minimum of what they, they're asking you because the more information you give, the more questions it generates. Is that scary for you? Like you're young, you're 24, young girl traveling by herself. Were you intimidated by that? I don't remember being scared. I don't, I've, I've been in situations where I have been scared um, before and since, but I don't, I don't actually remember being scared. I remember thinking, especially when I can't believe they let me answer my phone, but um, I remember feeling like annoyed <laughs> and inconvenienced, perhaps because I was young, I didn't appreciate the gravity of the situation, but they seemed more concerned that I was a security risk rather than anything else. I think it was just a bunch of, you know, officials who were a bit bored, to be honest. This is the person we can interrogate, you know, for an hour before our lunch break. Let's pull her into the little white room. And because otherwise they probably wouldn't have let me, you know, do this phone interview. And I told the lady, I was like, oh, sorry if I seem a bit distracted. I'm actually being interrogated at Tel Aviv Airport. And she's like... (laughs) what? She's like, I can call you when you get back to Egypt. And I'm like, my phone doesn't seem to work in Egypt. So we're going to have to do this now. Jeez, what a, what a situation to be in. So you got the role for this tour operator in Egypt. And what happened from then? You obviously went and, and took that work. I left Egypt. I got really sick in Egypt. So I ended up leaving and I went and spent um, a month in the UK with my family. And it was two months prior to starting in Turkey. So um, I got bored. <laughs> I got bored in, in England. And I was like, you know, I think I'll go to Morocco. So I took off and went to Morocco for like two weeks and thought, yeah, it's just going to be the same as Egypt. It was not the same as Egypt. It was very, very different and very, very weird back then. But yeah, and then I, I just, you know, flew into Istanbul and they the tour operator picked me up and basically started the training the next day. And there was, uh, I think, eight other people from memory. And we had this, you know, training trip. There are a few customers on it. They, I think they call them guinea pig trips where the customer gets, you know, a really good price, but, and they're told up front, we're training our new tour leaders for the season on this trip, but we'll give you the trip for half price because they obviously, you need customers to sort of practice on and give you feedback. And we got to know the customers and they got to know us and we got to know the drivers and all the, got to visit all the, you know, awesome sites again. And it was hardcore. The training to be a tour leader is really hardcore, but 100% worth it. 
In what ways is it difficult? Well, I mean, everybody thought originally that why are you even here? Why are you doing the showing? You've got a degree in ancient history. I mean, they're, they're, the pay is ridiculously low. But they're like, they're never going to get anyone with your experience for the kind of money that, that they're paying people. So why are you even worried about, about this training trip? But I still wanted to do my best. And, and things like, um, you're expected to try all the activities that were on offer because they were things that you had to obviously recommend to the clients. They put us on quad bikes in Cappadocia and like we're driving up like the rocky, you know, embankments and stuff. And my one stalled. And it stalled and basically rolled over me and I ended up with a concussion. And then the next day I had to stand up and, you know, talk on the bus and it was the last day of the trip. So it was like I had, it was like our exam, get up and talk about this topic. And I just got up there and just, I was like a kangaroo in the headlights because I was concussed. But that's, that's, that's being a tour leader. Like there's no sick days. There's no days off. You know, if you're tour leading somewhere that needs a, needs a visa, like Russia used to or Mongolia or they can't just call somebody else in to, to take over because, you know, you're dying of food poisoning. You have to go. You have to get up for work. And that was all in your training. You've had this incident, this accident in your training. And then you're still trying to learn and, t- and take in the notes and the details and all the facts and they just were like, push on. Yeah, because that's what it's like. They ended up, it didn't end up affecting, obviously, because I got the job. You're still pretty much interviewing while you're being trained. And, and they're, they're really pushing you all the time. Like they're pushing you to do things. Um, I mean, this is a low, obviously a low budget operator that's aimed at young people. This was back when I was 24. They're pushing you to do things like go out drinking every night because that's what your customers want to do. And you have to go with them. And then, yeah, you have to get up at 6 a.m. the next morning because you have to get on the bus and discuss the route with the driver. Was there any point where the romanticism of being hit there and working in Turkey, was there any point where you're like, actually, this is, this, I've been sold a bit of a lie or were you still enthusiastic about continuing what you were doing? Little from column A, little from column B. Yeah. Um, tour leading in general, and this is every position I've ever had, it's either the best day of your life or the worst day of your life. There's no average day. There's nothing in between. It's either an amazing day or you just want to curl up in the fetal position and hide under your bed. So after your job in uh, your first introduction to the travel world, where did you end up after that? Then I ended up at Flight Centre. <laughs> oh, then you ended up at Flight Centre, in it based in Australia? Yeah, so I was in um, in Sydney, the Met Centre, which was a really, really busy store. That was a, a cool job, but being in totally office space wasn't really for me and I'm not I'm not really a salesy person either so I was able to make sort of the sales targets that were set but it was still a lot of staying back until like nine o'clock at night trying to get quotes done and end up getting trying to get some extra commission to like make my rent and it was too much work and it was a job I wasn't a huge fan of the remuneration wasn't overly worth it to be honest so after flight center went spent six months in Africa that's right (laughs) And what did you do over there? That that was that was like an expedition thing. So that I wasn't working. I just put my pennies away and saved up for it. I just saw this thing on was advertised this Cape Town to Cairo thing and I was like, I have to do this. And it was it was it was so expensive. And I thought we'd finish with uni at the end of the year. I'm gonna do this. And I'd I'd always wanted to go to Sudan. And my my I'm one of those people that if you say you'll never be able to do that or if you can't do that, I'm like, right. I'm doing it. And my high school history teacher taught us about the pyramids in Sudan. He said, oh, don't even bother trying to get there. It's impossible to go to Sudan. And I'm like, this trip went right through it. And I was like, I'm going to Sudan. It was amazing, an amazing trip and probably, dare I say, the best experience ever. So 
best experience of my life. The two weeks in Sudan, it was literally camping in the desert. There was no campsite. You just pulled off the road for the day. It was like 48 to 50 degrees every day. There were no showers. <laughs> there was no wow. proper bar. You're really roughing it. 10 days with no shower. What was the purpose of this expedition? Um, it was literally just to drive from Cape Town to Cairo in a truck. Wow. And was there any situations or experiences that were unsafe or shareworthy? There's a, there's a lot of shareworthy experiences, but there was really only one unsafe experience. It has nothing to do with a company that ran it because we had 10 days in the middle of the expedition, which wasn't covered by the fees. And it was just 10 days to sort of recharge yourself. And you could, you know, you could either stay in the campground with the crew or you could go and stay in a fancy hotel. And it was like to restock and resupply and, you know, obviously recharge. And a lot of us needed visas for the countries that were north of Kenya. So for Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt. And I I had all my visas except uh, the Sudanese one, but the Sudanese one, you needed a letter of introduction. So I managed to get that and I was done. Me and a couple of friends I'd made on the truck, they didn't have their Egyptian visa. So we decided to share a cab and we'd made friends with a cab driver, as you do in Kenya. And we drove to the embassy, the Egyptian embassy, and we parked outside. And I was like, I'll just wait in the car with Felix, who was the cab driver. And they went in. I'm sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And then this big Dodge Ram like truck pulls up, like khaki colored. With all these guys on the back of it with AK-47s or M16s or what have you. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's, what's this? And then the driver just goes into full-on panic mode. And there's like, the em- you got the embassy wall here and there's another car parked behind us and we're here. So, like, there's nowhere for him to go. And he literally reverses into the car behind us and, like, tries to take off. Meanwhile, these guys are all getting off the back of the truck, grabbing onto the cab, pointing their guns in at him. I don't, e- don't even think they realized I was in there. And I'm still sitting there, calm as anything, going, this is interesting. This is going to make a good story later. And then I sort of snapped out and went, get out of the car. What are you doing? And I sort of kamikaze rolled into the ditch out of the moving vehicle and ended up trapped between the wall and the other parked car and the taxi and these guys in front of me. And I was like, caught an animal. And I couldn't repeat what I said. (laughs) It was a lot of F words. Naturally, in that situation. Yeah. Well, this is something I say to people. When things like happen, like this happen, you never know how you're going to react. And I reacted with violence. (laughs) I was like, what's going on? So what was their aim? What were they actually, were they robbing you? Were they, what were they doing? This is where it gets interesting. He, they, one of the guys looked up at me and they seemed to be shocked that the guy even had a passenger and they were like, he cannot park here. And I was like, what? That's a bit over the top. And then they drove off. They drove off after that. And I was like, just stunned. And I, I got back in the car and then my friends came, the funny thing is funny, they come out of the Egyptian embassy and they're like, oh, Chris, you may as well just take the cab. This is going to be ages and just walked in and I'm sitting in the back of the cab like this. Like Shaking. nothing happened. Yeah. So Felix and I drove off to the shopping center, which is where I was going to like buy a new headlamp and a new air mattress and a new pillow because they'd all gotten pretty ragged during the rest of the trip. And Felix was like, they're not parking inspectors. I was like, no, no, I, I figured that out for myself. <laughs> And he said, they're vigilantes. He said, what they do is they they try to take your car unless you bribe them. Ah, right. So that's what they were after. And 
I actually went to the crew campsite and one of the other girls who was staying there said the exact same thing happened to them. They lost like $300 to like, because they paid them to go away. And they're like, how much did you lose, Chris? And I was like, nothing. You stood your ground. I, I said, I stood my ground. And I said, the cab driver said that. I said, why didn't they take any money from, from us or me? You know, because they see tourists as, you know, like walking wallet. He's me, obvious tourist. He's like, oh, it's because you yelled at them. They're not used to women yelling at them. Wow. You're like, not on my watch. Am I going to be robbed today? I just didn't know what was going on and I was just cornered like a wild animal. And I, I always thought before that that if I was in that sort of situation that I'd be curled up terrified in the fetal position. But that's you just never know how you're going to react when something like that happens. And what age were the people who were coming on these this expedition? People like were they your because you were still quite young in your twenties? Were were there older people? It depended on the section. So the section from Cape Town to Victoria Falls was you know younger people. Uh, so around around my age, we had two eighteen year olds join us in Victoria Falls for the section from Vic Falls to Nairobi, uh, which was really interesting. And then once we got to Nairobi, a lot of people left in Nairobi, and we got a whole heap of new people. And the dynamic of the group really changed. So we ended up, we had a guy who was like in his 50s and who was a history teacher. We had this other couple, Derek and Sheila, and Sheila was 79 and Derek was 80. Were they Australian? No, they were British. <laughs> With names like that, you'd think that'd almost be Australian. Yeah, I know you would, wouldn't you? No, they, they, were, they were British. And Derek was amazing. Derek was like the tallest old man I've ever seen. He was like six foot four or something. And he was great to go through Ethiopia with because um, my, my temp mate, my temp mate was younger than me and she was like short and blonde and attracted a lot of attention. Derek, every time we walked through the marketplace, used to pretend to be our grandfather. <laughs> People would leave us alone. It would have been, yeah, so interesting. And I think that's the beautiful thing about travel is you meet such a variety of people from different walks of life, of different ages, of different paths, but it's not, you know, something like that you would think would be more suited for a younger clientele, but obviously not, you know, it's quite adventurous, quite out there to do an expedition like this. You think about the cost. I mean, there was me and another guy and we both saved for like two years to do this, this trip. And then there was another guy and I met up with him in London not too long after the trip and he's got like an apartment on the Thames in Docklands and I was like wow you're way richer than I am <laughs> like it's probably like drop in the ocean cost wise for him I mean and I think that's why you got all different types I mean and Sheila and Derek probably you know retired and had a decent amount of amount of money so you, you never can tell you never can tell who you're going to get on one of these trips so after your trip across Africa where did your life lead you then well, I came back home and moved to Brisbane for a while. That was a bit ill-fated. Okay. <laughs> and, I, I, it, and that is something where I say to people, if you have a bad feeling about something, trust your intuition because I never thought twice about moving to Turkey. I really loved living in Istanbul. I mean, I, I liked my apartment. It was right on the Bosphorus. I used to be able to watch ships crossing into the Black Sea. Istanbul was awesome. But then I had this sort of sense of trepidation about moving to Brisbane and I it just didn't work out. So I, okay, I came back, got a few temp jobs at travel agents, but ultimately I went back to tour leading. I'd already zeroed in on the company that I wanted to work for, which was Toucan Travel, and they're not around anymore, unfortunately. Was that a COVID death for them? Or that was, was yeah, that, that was a COVID death. I was very sad to see um, 
see them go down because they they had so many trips and they, they primarily operated in South America with, with the Overland trucks, but I'd applied for their European program. And part of their European program, they let me choose between their tour of the Balkans, their Moscow to Istanbul tour, or their Trans-Mongolian Railway. And I picked the Trans-Mongolian Railway because that was something that I'd always wanted to do. And the tour ran for 53 days from Beijing to Budapest. So I was just going backwards and forwards between Beijing and Budapest for like eight months, which was just, I mean, and people used to look at me and go, don't you get bored? Don't you get bored with that train ride? Because one of the sections of the train is three days. You're literally on a train for three days. Wow, that's intense. How many kilometers is that? Um, I think it's about 3,000, but I think the whole trip is something like 7,000 maybe. The whole trip, if you did the whole Trans-Siberian, that's seven days. Like you could sit on the train for seven days. The trip used to start, either start or finish in Beijing, and then you go to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, and then Irkutsk in Siberia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then you'd go down through, like, the Baltics um, down to Budapest. So it was, it was, and it was all on public transport. And that was one of the things that actually drew me to it because I didn't have a driver. <laughs> there was no bus driver. I was like, right, it's all on me. It's all on me to make the experience awesome. And it was nothing, nothing ever went wrong. There are a lot less mishaps, which does mean there were, you know, a few less interesting stories because all the interesting stories in that job, they all come from potentially bad situations or situations where you go, I'm going to look back at this one day and laugh. Well, you've been in the travel industry now for at least uh, 14 years. What are some of the adventures or some of the highlights or things that are kind of a bit like, holy shit, I can't believe that happened, that have happened to you within your time in the industry? One with the most recent company I worked for prior to, to starting happened to me in Uzbekistan and Central Asia. So we crossed the border overland. This tour used to run for 42 days from Beijing to Istanbul. And we were crossing the border between Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, which is hard enough. Instead of a bus, the local operator, the local partner had gotten us a convoy. So six cars instead of a tour bus. And I'm always the last person across a land border. That's logistically the way things are supposed to go in case somebody has a problem because you can't go back. So you have to be last. And I'm just like, where's my group gone? <laughs> I get out. Where, where is everyone else? I told them all to wait for me. But the guide has gone and grabbed them all and put them into cars and the cars are unmarked. And I'm like, they've just been taken by taxi touts. I'm like, why are you all in these cars? Oh, this guy told us that he was with sundowners and that we should get in these cars. And I'm like trying to get them all out. And then the guide comes up to me. He's no, 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 I'm with sundowners. I was like, well, where's the bus? He's like, we can't get a bus. And I'm like, this tour was booked four months in advance. How can you not get a bus? And I was like, okay, right. We have to, we just have to deal with what's in front of us. Okay. We get to the hotel and I make a phone call to the local operator, basically kind of tearing them a new one going, can't run a tour without a bus. I need a bus. They all need to be able to hear me when I'm speaking. They all need to be able to hear the guide. They've paid to hear the guide. They've paid to get the information. The guide's in one car and somebody else is in another car. The people in that car are getting to listen to the guide or the people in another car are getting to listen to me, but there's still four cars worth of people who have got nobody. Aren't getting any tour, essentially. Yeah, they're just in a car with a non-English speaking driver. I said, I need a bus. So the next day they got me a bus. 
and the bus lasted the day before it broke down. So where were you at that point? We were about to catch train to uh, Tashkent. The last thing you want, you know, with the bus breaking down is it to happen before you get a train. And we're like seven kilometers away from the station. So there's no option to walk and nobody tells you what's going on. And I can see like we're on the bus and I can see the guide and the driver kind of having words. And I'm like sitting on the bus going, I've been, because I'd been through the broken down bus situation before. Yeah. And I'm like, I know what's going on. This bus is broken down. So I get off and I'm like, just get right. Guys, what's going on? We need to get to the station. And the guides are like points at the driver. His bus is broken down. And I'm like, that's fine. We need to solve the problem. <laughs> what about that bus? And he's like, that's a local bus. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Can we get the local bus? Can I maybe offer him 50 US dollars to take the group to the station? He's like, oh, we can, we can try. So we go up to the bus driver, we hail the bus down and the guide translates for me into Uzbek and I hold the $50 up and he drives off. I'm like, he's like, oh no, he will. He's just dumping the other passengers. And I'm like, that wasn't really necessary. So he goes and he dumps the other passengers around the corner and comes back and I get on the bus. I get, all right, okay guys, this bus is broken down, but I've bribed a local bus driver to take us to the station. So they get off the bus. Uzbek buses basically have about three seats on them for disabled people and the rest of it's all standing room. So they're all getting thrown around. They're all giggling and laughing, which is a great sign. And we get to the station and the train is actually the thing that I've been worried about for the entire tour because it, li- it literally stops for three minutes and if you're not on, it just leaves without you. And I've got a tour full of 13 people all over the age of 65. So getting them up the stairs, getting all their luggage on, three minutes, it's a big ask. And I had this whole plan in my head about how it was going to happen. It's not how it happened because we only just made it to the station in time. Didn't have time to explain the plan. There's me standing, you know, on the platform like a cheerleader yelling the plan at them. Get on the train, pass that luggage up. Don't worry about finding your seat just yet. If you're left behind, you'll be left behind with me. I'll be the last one on the train. Literally got on the train. My foot was just was getting on the train just as the train was pulling out, and I'm just like, oh my god, oh my god, stressful, very stressful, massively stressful. But the funny thing was, after 41 days, we got to Istanbul and we had the farewell dinner. And I always ask everybody, what was your favorite part of the trip? That day in Uzbekistan where you bribed the bus driver. Because it's unique, right? It's a unique, it's an authentic situation, real situation. Yeah, they yeah. all loved it. Yeah, it's something that's happened to them that probably won't happen to many other people. Yeah, that's right. You can't buy that experience. No. So you, it seems, it appears you've always really liked the long 40, 50-day tours through these quite... Third world, you know, you're not you're not going to the UK, you're not doing Greece, you're not doing Italy, you're doing all these sort of lower socioeconomic third world countries. What is it that appeals to you about traveling through these countries? And kind of kind of doing it on a bit of a budget, I guess. Um, well, I, ha- I have done the Europe sector. Another incident where the bus broke down was in Paris with 50 people. That's happened twice to me in Paris, if you can actually believe that, with the same driver. Wow. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's the type of tour and the type of person that those tours attract. So when you're on a 50-seater bus tour around Europe where you're in a different country every day, it's a totally different type of travel to the traveler who travels for 41 days across a place like Central Asia and Iran. What attracts me to those countries, and you're very right in saying they are my favorite places, there's not a lot of tourists there, so you don't have to share your experience with thousands of people. 
Um, and that's why with Inverted Atlas, these are the places that we go because that is that is one of the things that that I find really great about these places. And likewise, even with places that are sort of a well-trodden path, like Egypt, for example, Egypt has these sort of sites which are bang, 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 Abu Simbel, Valley of the Kings, pyramids. They're on every single tour. And most tours, there's just so much more there that you, you can walk through an absolutely epic Egyptian temple You'd be the only person in it. It's literally next to a temple that's on all the tours. So there's like 3,000 people in this temple and no one in the one next to it. And it's all about knowing about that. So one of the things that really struck me on that Africa trip, because Egypt was the final destination, we'd come through um, Ethiopia and Sudan. And my God, Ethiopia was a different kind of experience. How so? The locals definitely weren't used to tourism. You were seen as complete walking wallet people always like give me money give me money give me money they thought we were part of the un i think because like back then ethiopia nobody visited ethiopia a lot of the charity and aid in ethiopia uh went on for a bit too long because ethiopia now uh, like you go there and you you could if you just woke up there like in southern ethiopia you could be mistaken for thinking you're in ireland or somewhere in europe like it's so green and fertile and black soil people have just sort of forgotten how to farm and do things for themselves and you just you drive through the little towns and you just see people sitting outside you know the un bases and it's like now's the time to stop giving handouts and like reteach them how to do things for themselves because every time they see well i don't know if, i don't think it's like that anymore but back then it was like if they saw a you know person with fair skin it was like oh it's a un worker it just got very tiresome and like when we stopped the truck it didn't matter where we were like we could be in a village or the middle of the desert or you know a place where it's like there's not another human soul somebody would come and stand there and watch us and it was usually somebody with a gun which you just got used to but you know the guns of villages in ethiopia that's like they might they're like off casts from the war in somalia and they might have like one bullet in them and it's to defend their sheep and goats so they're not gonna waste that on you for want of a better word mm. how do you deal with your clients so if you if you're a tour operator and you're in a, in a situation and you've got you know, you've got clientele there and, and you're faced with that. How do you deal? Because obviously there's some level of fear, you know, when you when you see that and you see everyone's got guns, like how, how do you deal with that as a tour operator? Well, we don't go to Ethiopia at the moment. I have organised to a Ethiopia in the past and it's not been the most smooth process. You really need to get it right as far as your local partner goes because they're your representative on the ground. So that's that's why we have it with Ethiopia. We're looking at taking it on, and I think I have found somebody um, who I can trust to represent us there. Because um, you always need boots on the ground when you're a tour operator. That's, that's right. people are trusting you. A lot of danger in these countries is perceived danger. So a great example of this is like when we were we were on that truck, we tried to go through. We tried to take the Oasis route um, in Egypt. So um, you've got you know you can go straight up the Nile to Cairo, or you can sort of sweep out and there's all these beautiful oases in the desert and that's where this trip was supposed to go but the police pulled us over because apparently we didn't have the right permit french in egypt for the police want a bribe and we ended up at the police station all day and these guys in white outfits like like army guys surrounded us and they all had ak-47s and everybody on the truck was in a panic and i was like What's wrong? What's wrong with you lot? Why are you in panic? Oh, we've been surrounded by guys with guns. Can't you see out the window? And I'm like, they're the t- 
tourist police. Like they're here to protect us. <laughs> so it, it's a lot of a lot of the time the danger is perceived. It's like they're not they're not guarding us because we're criminals or because they're going to shoot us. They're guarding us because we're important. So you know, obviously with Egypt in Africa, tourism is you know their their number one export. So they need to keep tourists safe. So they have the tourist police for that. And and it's the same it was the same in Ethiopia. Like you know, when you get all these villagers come out and they're all standing there watching you, you know, cook your lunch or whatever, or put your tents up or following you when you try to go to the toilet in the bush and you know they've got a gun it's like the gun is not to shoot you it's not for people it's literally to protect their sheep and goats and they probably only have one bullet no villager ever pointed a gun at any of us and we never saw them point even point a gun at a human it's just like it's just to defend their sheep and goats from wildlife have you had any experiences in the travel industry that have been near death or very hairy actually i did have white water rafting on the zambezi it was is a grade four rapid, but it was a set of four rapids. So all the rapids on the Zambezi have like cute little names. And this one was called the mother and the children. And so you have the three children, which are all grade two, that lead up to the mother, which is the how, grade how four. Big's, I don't know anything about water rafting. What's the largest grade? The largest grade is a five, but you wouldn't, grade five is where you take the raft out of the water and walk around it. Oh, okay. So grade four is pretty high then. Grade four is pretty, pretty high. Like grade, grade five would be like a whirlpool during the wet season. You wouldn't go in that. But our raft flipped on the first child. So it flipped on a grade two, which is embarrassing. But it meant that we all went through the two grade two rapids and then the mother. I think I got pulled under on the first child and then I came up and I was under the raft and that's the most dangerous place you can be. So it's like, you know, pull yourself out as quickly as possible. And I pulled myself out just in time to be faced with the mother rapid and got completely sucked under in into the rocks and it's like being in a dumper wave. Like you don't know which way's up. And I was just sort of like, I've been under there for such a long time. And it was another moment where I thought, this is it. I'm dead, I'm dead. And I was just sort of about to, you know, breathe in a load of water and my head broke the surface and I was under the boat again. And for some reason I went all Bruce Willis and yelled, yippee ki you know. <laughs> but it was, it was all adrenaline. It was all adrenaline. And, yeah, those two times I actually did think my number was up. On your tours with Inverted Atlas, do you have a particular tour that's probably the most highest risk in terms of the country or where you tour or what your tour involves? We have one that's really extreme. So um, visits Mongolia, uh, so far Western Mongolia, which is about as remote as you can get in Mongolia. And basically it visits the Mongolian Eagle Festival. It goes to see Provolsky's horse and the really remote bit is you go for five days into the wilderness to track snow leopards. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's really it's a really awesome tour, but it does involve flying out there with a small Mongolian airline because Mongolia is quite a big country. And it also involves uh, building your own gur in the wilderness. So, so that's like a, like a tent? Yeah, it's like a yurt. So um, like a little white round. It's what, what the nomads live in in Central Asia. In Mongolia, it's called a gur. In Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, it's called a yurt. And it's really cool because you, you obviously get to build your own, your own gur, you know, traditional nomadic dwelling. But it's obviously hard work too. It can get down to sort of minus 20 in that area at time of the year and you're staying in what is essentially a tent. They do have little pot-bellied stoves in the middle, so they are very cozy tents. 
was like my trip to Sudan. There's no bathroom facilities, there's no shower for five days. You really are roughing it. Is there anywhere in the world that you wouldn't travel to? I don't think so. Because <laughs> you seem quite adventurous and you, you're open to a bit of risk. Personally, like there are places I wouldn't go at the moment. Just before the pandemic hit, I was reading Lonely Planet's top 20 places to visit in 2020 and Tripoli in Libya was on there and I was like, you know, I've been to Libya, but it was in 2010. Would I go now? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Libya doesn't have a stable government. Libya is completely controlled by warring different groups of terrorists. There's no way I'd be recommending people go to Libya at the moment. When it settles down and eventually it will settle down, um, I, I'd love for Inverted Atlas to go to go to Libya because it's fabulous, it's a fantastic country. And while I was there and while Gaddafi was in power, I mean, it was it was a weird experience being in a place that's so loaded with propaganda. I felt completely safe. I never felt like I was in danger or anything and completely different to all the other countries in North Africa too. What would you say is the most underrated country that you've been to that isn't a tourist hotspot? I'd have to say... Uzbekistan, actually, Uzbekistan. I was going to say Iran, but there's just so much to see there. Like, there's a lot of people out there who are who are picture takers, and I get that. Uzbekistan's good for them too. So there's there's so many beautiful blue domed mosques. The Registan, the ship graveyard out in the, you know, extreme west of the country, the palaces, and the people there are really friendly. It does remind me a little bit of Turkey. Like, the food is very similar. Like, they have a lot of grilled meats and kebabs and, and things like that. So, you know, it's sort of very friendly for, you know, a Western stomach. But, yeah, I think it's it's totally it's totally underrated. And it's not – like, when you go there, you think, oh, God, Uzbekistan. Like, you know, I know people who couldn't locate Uzbekistan on a map. You think, yeah, that's going to be me. Yeah, it's going to be a massive culture shock. I think it's like maybe below China. Above China and kind of to the west of China. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Going forward, like I love love the idea of these – Tours, these, these off-the-beaten-track kind of tours, particularly like that you offer in, in, within your business. So, you know, it's not just go to Germany and go to, you know, Oktoberfest or go to London and see Big Ben, you know, all this sort of standard, very what I'd class as kind of beige or vanilla tours. I love that you, what you offer is is unique experiences. Can you just maybe give a give a 10 second pitch of why traveling and doing things un- these unique tours is actually more beneficial for people to see the world? Okay, so I think, you know, going to the off off the beaten path places, as far as a tour goes, provides the traveler with um, a lot more value because they're places that you can see you, you can't usually can't find on your own. And that's that's one of our promises to our customers. See places that you wouldn't be able to get to on your own. Like like you said, Big Ben, Oktoberfest, the pyramids, these are all things that you can do independently. Why do you need a tour company to do that? But to get to some of the places that we visit and to have some of the experiences that we provide, for example, helping um, like a local Mongolian family migrate from their winter residence to their summer residence, you can't get that. That's cool. You can't get you. You can't do that on your own because you obviously you can, you don't make the connections, long term connections that a tour company does. So we like to think of ourselves as immersive. So immersive means that you'll know where you are from the moment you wake up. 
you'll be in a hotel where you're like, wow, I'm in Egypt or wow, I'm in Morocco. Wow, I'm in Agur in Mongolia. It's not just somewhere to hang your hat. The experiences are authentic. They're not things that are just put on for tourists where you're going to get a sales pitch and buy this stuff at this market on the way out. And the sites, the sites, as I said, are going to be places that you you might not be able to get to on your own. So, and that's that's why, you know, you should book with a tour company because you can't do it on your own. Because if you can do it on your own, then why are you paying somebody else? And one last question, Christina, if you could live in any country in the world based on all the travels. Actually, quickly, how many countries have you been to? 85. 85. And how many countries are there in the world? I think 197. Wow. Okay. So you're getting there. (laughs) I've been to Russia, I think, 10 times. Oh, yeah. So you've you've traveled a lot. (laughs) Yeah. If you could live in any country in the world, where would you prefer to live? I'd move back to Turkey in a heartbeat. Would you? Yeah. I loved loved living in Istanbul. It's such a a great vibe. It's a city of 25 million people. Like the whole population of Australia is in that city. in one city, yeah. But it feels like it's got a small town vibe. Like you get to know your neighbors and they also have this amazing camaraderie with Australians. Yeah, that's very cool. But yeah, I feel very inspired to go and take a an adventure or a trip like that now because there are some fantastic hidden corners of the world and what your business is doing is ultimately showing showing some of those spots. So yeah, how fantastic. Thank you very much for your time and expertise and I, I think inspiring me to go and get on a plane and go somewhere a little bit different. Love that. I implore people to get out of their comfort zone and visit a place they might not have considered before. Thanks for tuning in. In the aim of serving up interesting and enjoyable content, for the meantime, I've decided to remove all the ads. Creating this podcast is a true labor of love as it's owned and produced independently, not with a big network like most of the successful shows, and there's currently no financial gain in producing it. Each episode can take around 20 hours of prep work before it's released, and I pay an audio editor a substantial fee to edit each episode. Therefore, If you love this free content, I would be super appreciative if you could leave a five-star review for the show. Maybe you or someone you know has a great story that's worth sharing. If you do, please get in touch via hello at edwinarobertson.com.